isn't the self just the individual? Or what is actually a self? And we can talk about that in a moment, but what emerged was the idea that if something is excessively differentiated, let's say in the body, you know, and it starts growing with disregard of its being part of the interconnected whole, we call it cancer. So then it became kind of a clear that it could be that the construction of the solo self by modern culture is a kind of cancer of modern times. And when we think about all the pandemics we're facing, not only how we've mishandled COVID-19 or even it's unfolding on the planet, but you know, racism and social injustice, polarization and misinformation, addiction to digital screens, loneliness, and climate, the climate crisis. All of those are excessive differentiation, either of the singular solo self or the, the solo self that says people of my skin color and my background are the only ones in the in-group, or even human beings are the only important species and the rest of the earth is a trash can. You know, all of that comes from this solo self mentality. And the amazing thing about it is the mind constructs how it views what the self is. And it's shaped by your parents, by your teachers in school, by your peers, by society at large. So then, even though we may feel guilty about that, the good news is if the mind created it, if we name it correctly and look at it deeply, which I try to do in the book, we have the opportunity to use the mind to course correct. And it's not too late. Hello, and welcome back to Intersections. Today, I'm delighted that the uh, guest speaker we have is so emblematic of the main theme of this podcast, which is this notion of dissolving boundaries, of connecting the dots, of integrating across so many different arenas and spheres of life and the universe. Um, that's our aspiration in order to help us all tap into the fullest potential, the fullest potential of humanity, of life and of your own individual selves. And this individual is Dr. Dan Siegel. He is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the UCLA School of Medicine and the founder and co-director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA. He is an award-winning educator, a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association and has received many honorary fellowships. He is also the executive director of the Mindsight Institute, where he offers online learning and in-person seminars that focus on how to develop this notion of Mindsight in individuals, families, and in communities, and how to kind of enhance that by examining the interface of human relationships and basic biological processes. He has lectured nationally and internationally, including for the King of Thailand, Pope John Paul II, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, Google University, and London's Royal Society of Arts. He's the author of many New York Times bestselling books, including Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human, and Aware, The Science and Practice of Presence. It is my joy to invite in our midst today, Dr. Dan Siegel.
Hitendra, an honor to be here with you, and thank you for inviting me to join in your wonderful gathering of intersections, which I listen to and really, really get inspired so often by your work and the work that you really illuminate from other people too. Oh, thank you, Dan. It's an honor to hear you say that. And, you know, we're going to spend a bunch of time, folks, today talking about Dan's latest work. It's a book called Intraconnected, which will be Dan, in the market, it'll be released in just a few days. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. This is just a few moments before it's being birthed into the world. Uh -huh. yeah. Wonderful. Before we get there, though, I want to go back into, into time. And I remember it was around 2007 or so. I was on a search. I was very drawn to integrating you know, the inner life kind of sensibilities that I picked up in India in growing up over the years, and then the outer success, you know, parameters that uh, America has been so instrumental in teaching me in the three decades plus that I've lived here now. And I want to do that because I wanted to create like a science-based curriculum that I could bring to the business school, you know, something I call personal leadership. And I was looking out for who might be like the luminaries, the superstars, the active you know, just exponents of the latest scientific understanding of human nature. I ended up at this evolution of psychotherapy event, you know, this once every five year epic event in the field of psychotherapy in Anaheim. And um, as I was sampling what is a very rich agenda they have of um, experts, I came across you and, you know, you were holding sway in such a powerful way with the audience, you know, the um, teachings and ideas that you were offering, but also more than just like an intellectual exchange, you know, I felt there was almost like a deep, like spirit to spirit bond, you know, that was being built in that room. And folks, I mean, I remember Dan, you sitting there with probably, I don't know, arguably several hundred, maybe like a thousand people in the audience or something. And it was very moving for me. It was very moving because that event was really my introduction to psychotherapy, psychiatry, you know, these mental health and behavioral sciences. And, um, seeing you really bring so much uh, power and possibilities, you know, to uh, uh, human transformation uh, there was, uh, was heartwarming and beautiful. And I'm so grateful that you took up my just like outreach, you know, to shake my hand and talk to me and start what has for me been like a really rewarding uh, friendship and really in so many ways, mentorship, you know, from you. Well, the thank you for those kind words. And it's been mutual, Hitendra. So I remember meeting at that gathering and uh, I've loved the conversations that you and I have had and with Caroline and with your wife and our, our families having intersections with each other. Uh, and it's been, a, it is a wonderful and important friendship to us too and to me. Yeah. And um, we're going to get into the science of it. We're going to get into your ideas in, in just a moment uh, again, uh, friends. But um, I want to highlight how much, Dan, you live and breathe what you teach. I remember there was a moment, Renu, my wife was uh, talking about how struck she was, you know, with the mindfulness, the presence, the, the care, friendship, you know, that you brought in just like even small moments, you know, just with our daughter who was, I don't know, maybe seven or eight, you know, <laughs> in, in those years. So it was, it was really special to see how, um, how much what you talk about and think about and write about really comes from a deeply you know, experienced and lived set of truths for you. Well, thank you. You know, I think uh, there's a, a simple kind of stance or attitude one can take 
especially when you're working in a field professionally that deals with people's um, joys and sorrows, you know, the field of mental health, and then make sure that the professional explorations that you undertake both with the people you have the privilege to work with, but also in the concepts you have that you're working with colleagues about, how that actually resonates with the way you live your personal life. So having the personal and the professional be, of course, distinct, you know, you have your private families and family and friends and stuff, but and your professional pursuits, but to make sure they're grounded in the same space of reality, if you will. So, you know, that's a challenge sometimes, and it's a journey and no one gets it just right all the time. But the idea of presence and being there has helped for me anyway, you know, to be a kind of guiding principle, you know, also how uh, in my own career, you know, when I started in academics and came up with a lot of resistance to certain fundamental principles, like seeing the mind as more than just brain activity was not very popular in the university setting. And though for many years as an educator there, I, I tried to really work with that. There wasn't much interest uh, or, and it wasn't welcoming. So I made a professional decision to stay on the course that seemed to me right, that even though Hippocrates had said mind is only what happens up in your head, in your brain, and William James kind of reaffirmed that in 1890 um, in the Principles of Psychology, that maybe that was actually true, but, but not the whole truth. Maybe there was a larger truth. So it wasn't so much rejecting uh, traditional thinking about mind is what brain does, but saying that's part of a much larger story. And by limiting our story, we limit um, how we can really support people's movement towards, you know, realizing a more fulfilling and freer life. So, you know, sometimes when, when you try to live in that kind of way of believing in some vision, sometimes it, it doesn't make you a popular kid on campus. <laughs> and sometimes you have to leave the campus, which is what I did uh, many years ago. So it is a journey, but it's sometimes lonely, you know, mm -hmm. because you, you break from the common cultural stance and, and that sometimes makes you a pariah. But if you stay true to, you know, a deep disciplined way of challenging what you think, and I mean, I'm, I'm full of doubt, so I'm always doubting these ideas, like maybe the mind is just the brain. I go, well, no, here all, here's all the evidence that that's probably mistaken. Um, and then try to use a rigorous approach to um, thinking about these things, then uh, the questions that arise can, can guide you. So that's a long way of responding to uh, uh, basically saying thank you for your reflections. And what's underneath all that is um, a lot of consideration. And uh, in these books that seem to just come out of me. I don't even try to write them anymore, but there, there's almost like a need for some kind of, if you think about the de derivatives of the word conversation, con is with versus to turn. So a conversation is turning together, turning with each other, uh, our attention. And so these books are really conversations. I think of them kind of as relational writing. Like I, if I can at least reach one person besides my mother, um, you know, who at 93 still reads my books, you know, that would be, I'll feel like the, it was worth taking the time, which takes a lot of time, a lot of energy, as you know, to write a book if I can reach, you know, just one person besides my mom. You know? 
Isn't that interesting, the contrast between the mothers and then the daughters? Uh, you and I were just talking about it briefly before this podcast, and I was lamenting to you that you know, I haven't yet been able to get my daughter to read my book. You know, it's my, my life's work so far. But on the yeah. other hand, you just talked about your mother, how beautiful at 93, and she's still reading your books. And actually, my mom's read my book too. So somehow the moms are more amenable. Huh, than, there you than, go. Than a, than a yeah, I mean, it's hard, you know, when you're a, a kid to, even an adult kid, to just say, well, this is my pops, you know, this is my dad, uh, <laughs> my father. Uh, let, let me just have them stay a father, not a writer or a public figure or something like that. It's it's hard. I think, you know, in, in my case, while my kids may not read my books, my daughter actually is the artist for my books. So yeah. she has to get the concepts. And so she'll read sections that, um, and maybe she's even read the whole thing and just doesn't say it to me. But it's an interesting journey to to make sure as husbands and as fathers, you know, we don't bring uh, whatever our professional world of, in my case, I'm mostly an educator these days, not just a therapist, but even as a therapist, to make sure I'm not being a therapist or educator to my <laughs> wife and, and now adult children. And so if an idea comes up and I start talking too much, you know, I need to get positive feedback from the positive meaning said in a very encouraging way. Dad, thank you so much, Dan. Thank you so much. Um, but this isn't a lecture hall. And that's that's sometimes hard to hear. And also because yeah. I have so many ideas, you know, that I want to share. <laughs> yeah, yeah. With these ideas, you know. Yeah, thank you for that. See, you're already mentoring me right here on, <laughs> on, on the podcast. I want to turn to Intraconnected. The title itself is very intriguing, right? Um, so it's clearly got something to do with connection, but then you're not using the word interconnected. You're using the word intraconnected. And folks, the um, subtitle of the book is As the Integration of Self-Identity and Belonging. And Dan has this acronym or I guess word that he's uh, devised, which Dan, you're very good at and acronyms mm -hmm. and and kind of new fresh words. Uh, but this one is MUI, as in M-W-E. And it's a basically mathematical uh, combination of me plus we, as in we. So interconnected, we, me plus we, as the integration of self-identity and belonging. What do you mean by intraconnected? Yeah, well, you know, what I mean by it is the connective uh, nature of the whole the W-H-O-L-E, and it's a word that emerged. Uh, I, I work with some system scientists um, at MIT, and uh, we went on a retreat to kind of, you know, have some experiential journey into systems experiences. So um, we went on three days in a forest in Colorado um, on our own. And when we all emerged out of the forest and gathered together in the forest to speak to each other about what that three days alone was like, it was really more all one for everyone. And people were using it, it, the terms like, I was interconnected, I felt interdependent. Uh, they used yeah. Thich Nhat Hanh's beautiful term, interbeing, they were interlaced, they were interwoven. And then it was mm -hmm. my turn to speak. And right. you know, as you note, I'm kind of a stickler for the meaning of words. And I said, boy, I resonate with everything everyone's saying, for sure. Mm -hmm but I can't use the inter prefix because that implies a betweenness. And the experience for this body was that this body, the creek, 
the sky, the trees. There was a connectedness within the whole. So I wasn't really in the body connected to the trees. I was the whole of it all. Uh -huh, beautiful. And then there was a pause and I said, well, so I guess I would say, I tried to find a word in English and I, the only word I could come up with was the withinness, intra, and the connectedness, connected. So I said, I was interconnected during these three days. Hmm. When we all came out of the forest and we all went back to our rooms, uh, I got my computer out to take some notes and to make some reflections about what that experience was like. And every time I would type intra-connected into you know, my little notes, it would switch it to interconnected. And I thought, what's wrong <laughs> with my computer? It turns out there is no word um, such as intra-connected. It doesn't exist. And then I thought, well, that's weird. If we don't have a word in the English language for the connectivity within the whole, then we don't have probably a concept and even a category because concepts and categories are beneath these words we use, kind of like a, like yeah. a pyramid. So then I thought, okay, well, then the term we had already been using where you integrate by differentiating and linking. So you have an inner aspect of your identity as me, but you have a relational aspect of identity connections to people, to the planet as a we, and who you are in many ways, if it's integrated, is both me and we. So it's not me to we, it's really me plus we. Yeah. And then when you integrate, you don't lose the differentiated nature of the components. So the element of the M and the element of the W can combine and retain themselves as we. And yeah. I started using that years ago and people would feel just in terms of the feeling, this incredible liberation that they didn't have to choose between yeah. the American kind of extreme of individualism, like I'm in a body uh, versus the relational collectivism yeah. you know, of we're all connected. I could have both with Mui and yeah. it's been fascinating and interconnected would be basically the nature of that me and we, so that if me is the interior the inner identity and we is the inter the relational identity then we is the intra-connected identity mm -hmm. yeah a couple of thoughts one is folks isn't it amazing that um you have literally just in the one word title of the book already educated us <laughs> that is you don't even have to open the book and read it right there in the first word itself there's so much of uh sense of thought provocation and originality and an invitation into something deeper than what the English vocabulary until now has given to us, right? So that's beautiful, uh, Dan, in what you've done. This thing with me, you know, sometimes I think about how when you look at the different, for example, parts of the body uh, as an integrated, you know, system, you have the lungs and the heart and all of these, you know, very specialized, very individual, very much expressive of their own, if you want to call it individual personalities. And yet, on the other hand, so interdependent. I mean, there's no way that any of them could exist on its own without being part of the system, serving and surrendering its oxygen and its blood supply to the rest of the body. But at the same time, getting so much back in return that in a healthy body, a healthy lung set of lungs flourish and a heart flourishes and a brain flourishes. So you kind of become like your highest potential at the individual level if you are serving and supporting and connected in a harmonious way with bringing out the highest potential at the integrative system level, right? Is, is that line of thinking, which is what I'm seeking to often talk to 
you know, folks in business, you know, about that, that, you know, it doesn't have to be a competition. It doesn't have to be some kind of a laddering of who's, you know, more successful than somebody else or something. Fundamentally, the world has been wired to create conditions where it's when we collectively thrive that we individually also don't become just clones. We actually become the unique, distinctive, best versions of our own self. Is, is that sort of like something that is coded into your thinking about me? Yeah, exactly. That that would be a beautiful way of talking about the practical implications of having a word for mui. So yeah. that in the extremes in anthropology, you know, we have individualism where you know, I'm in this by myself. The body yeah. is the only source of self. And we can call that a solo self. Or in extremes of collectivism, you know, we just have to go along with the group. Yeah. Right. And, you know, the, in, in my search for some balance of the two, you know, of the interior and the relational, as am we, the closest I can find so far anyway, is in the indigenous writings of Robin Wall Kimmerer in the book Braiding Sweetgrass. She talks about the Potawatomi uh, indigenous peoples who have uh, basically this, this cultural stance. We are responsible for, for cultivating our own personal gifts. Maybe you're good at music, maybe you're good at building things, maybe you're good at watching and protecting people, maybe you're good at collecting, you know, artifacts or whatever your gift is to recognize that's your individual gift. And the more we cultivate in the Potawatomi perspective, that gift, we give it for the greater good. So we share that for the greater good. So that's the closest I could come in my search for a we. But but the the interesting thing about the way you're describing it, Hitendra, is that everyone benefits. And this is where, you know, in, in wording, you know, when we have a languaging like we or like the word interconnected to new words, the book introduces, you know, is uh, with interconnected. Let's talk about the body example you're giving, you know, and I'm a physician and we were always talking about a system like let's say the nervous system you know being composed of neurons and their supportive glial cells or the cardiovascular system you know the heart and the blood vessels and we could talk about the system and we might talk about the interconnectedness of the systems but we didn't have a word for what is the whole system like i mean and here we would apply the word interconnected so what the what interconnected the book proposes is that modern culture which one time I was uh, in a, a conference with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and actually my son was 15 at the time sitting next to me. And I said, well, please help us gain some insights into how Western culture, you know, is so individualistic and in creating these divisions. And he stopped me and he said, please do not call it Western. He said, it's all over the world now. I said, okay, well, then modern culture. He goes, yes, modern culture. So you'll see me refer to that, you know, that, and my son kind of uh, elbows me in the, in the side and goes, the Dalai Lama got you, you know. Uh, but it was a really good edit. So unfortunately, it's all around the world, this solo self, this view of the self as only being centered in your body. And so what, as I was writing the book about, well, isn't the self just the individual? or what is actually a self? And we can talk about that in a moment, but what emerged was the idea that if something is excessively differentiated, let's say in the body, and it starts growing with disregard of its being part of the interconnected whole, we call it cancer. 
So then it became kind of a clear that it could be that the construction of the solo self by modern culture is a kind of cancer of modern times. And when we think about all the pandemics we're facing, not only how we've mishandled COVID-19 or even it's unfolding on the planet, but you know, racism and social injustice, polarization and misinformation, addiction to digital screens, loneliness, the climate crisis. All of those are excessive differentiation, either of the singular solo self or the, the solo self that says people of my skin color and my background are the only ones in the in-group or even human beings are the only important species and the rest of the earth is a trash can. All of that comes from this solo self mentality. And the amazing thing about it is the mind constructs how it views what the self is and it's shaped by your parents, by your teachers in school, by your peers, by society at large. So then, even though we may feel guilty about that, the good news is if the mind created it, if we name it correctly and look at it deeply, which I try to do in the book, we have the opportunity to use the mind to course correct. And it's not too late. You know, it's like someone hobbling around with a, a limp and you say, stop, stop, stop the limping. Let's take your shoe off. Let's take your sock off. Oh my gosh, there's a big splinter in your foot. May I remove it? And the person goes, well, sure, I didn't know it was there. You remove the splinter and now the person stops limping. We're limping through life as a human family and we need to stop, take the sock off, look at the soul of our experience, which I try to do in this book, and then remove the splinter and we're gonna be fine, but we need to do that change in business as usual mm -hmm. that's so powerful so um, it rings so true uh and in one sweep you've um, identified this to be the root cause of uh, so much that um, you know we're struggling with in the world today There's a story behind all of this that you share in the book. And I wonder if you can you know, give us glimpses of that you know, here today. A story of how at a certain moment early in your life, I think you were in college, yeah, that time when uh, you had a certain experience that kind of almost pushed you into this kind of a more interconnected state of awareness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a, a very painful time, but in writing the book, I realized um, that experience just before I turned 20 was a kind of instrumental experience. And the, the way it happened was basically, I was working for the World Health Organization as a college student. I had been inspired by an anthropology professor of mine right. um, who was studying different cultures. So we went to Mexico to study how uh, the advance in technology, they were, they were built expanding a dam, Presa Miguel Alemán, the Miguel Alemán Dam, and I was there to study aspects of the culture, in this case, the medical care that had been changed by the previous establishment of the dam and what might happen when the dam got expanded. So I studied uh, traditional healers, conderos. I studied barefoot doctors, which were kind of paramedics uh, in the communities and also uh, Western trained uh, physicians. And then part of my role there was to interview as many uh, of the curanderos as I could. And one of them was uh, living in the neighboring state of Oaxaca. I was in the state of Veracruz. 
And on the horse ride up to interview this queen of the mushrooms, you know, she's actually featured in um, the Netflix documentary on psychedelics. But I was riding with two colleagues and at a full gallop, the saddle of the horse got loose. It went and turned to the horse's belly. My feet were locked into the stirrups. And so my, my head was dragged across the rocks. They tell me for about a hundred yards. So my colleagues thought I had died from such a terrible accident. And then when I was moaning, they thought, well, I'd broken my neck, but you know, luckily my neck was okay. And I broke a lot of parts of my face, but the biggest breaking was I had no idea who I was. I didn't have language for the most part for things, for naming things. And I certainly didn't have a name for this body, but I kept on asking the question, you know, what's going on, what's going on. But the strange thing, Hitendra was, even though I had broken teeth, broken nose, a broken arm, right. I was kind of in this state of joy and um, everything was mm. kind of magical and um, sparkly and, you know, nothing had a kind of prior established filter. If someone gave me a glass of water, you know, I could take the cup and, you know, the light shimmering around this circular thing was just kind of beautiful and hilarious. And it was, it was an amazing time. And after 24 hours, the experience of knowing my name was Dan started coming back. The experience of knowing where I had been, you know, like I was just about to turn 20 and I, I lived in Los Angeles and all these things where I was now, I was working for the World Health Organization in Mexico, where I was going, I was applying to medical school. So the past, present and future came back. And years and years later, in neuroscience, we learned an aspect of networks in the brain called the default mode network that allow this narrative self of past, present and future to exist. But at mm -hmm. that time, you know, my personal experience was just like, wow, I could be wide awake and aware and yet have no identity. And the loss of kind of these, what I would call now top-down filters of prior learning were, were dismantled or disrupted. And so in the present moment, things were really kind of magical and magnificent. And, uh, you know, I have a family member who's a recovering addict, but at that time, an active addict. And so I had a psychological aversion to ever using medications or medicines or you know drugs that would alter my uh, state of mind. So I didn't have any experience with that, mm -hmm. but people who did would say, oh, you were stoned. And I said, well, I was dragged across the rock. So I guess that was my own version of being <laughs> um, But it's yeah. an interesting thing because studies have shown, in fact, that using psychedelics shuts off this default mode network. And it actually may be a part of its use in medical treatment for things like depression and trauma. So that's a whole nother story. But that's basically what happened. And what was relevant about putting it in this book was interconnected. The book really asks, like, what is the self? And goes through a way of looking at it from a, a scientific point of view that is consistent with indigenous teachings and consistent with you know, contemplative teachings that have been around for thousands of years. So in many ways, it's really supporting what those traditions have been saying for millennia and now just adding recent science to join that ancient invitation to realize that the separate self, the solo self is a constructed illusion that we are not just separate. We do have a body, we do have an interiority, that's the me, but we're not only a me. The mind is not just what happens in your head. And that's a, you know, a long scientific discourse in my other books that I write, but 
in this book, I wanted to really focus on self-experience, uh, which we can talk about. But that horse accident just illuminates that you can be filled with subjective experience. You can have a perspective and you can have a sense of agency that are not limited to your narrative self. So those three is an acronym of SPA, subjective experience, the felt texture of life, perspective, your point of view, and agency, how you act, the, the center of initiative action. That's kind of the core scientific view of what we mean by the word self. So it's like a center of experience across those three realms, right? Sensation, mm -hmm. perspective, and agency. And once you see that, you go, wow, you can construct a very kind of limited identity lens that says my spa is only inside this body. And then you're very constricted. Or you can learn to widen that identity lens and realize that you can feel like I did in the forest. You can feel the forest. Mm -hmm. You can see it from the perspective of the forest. You can act on behalf of the forest. And then your center of experience, that spa, is interconnected you know you you don't you don't have to give up the body you just yeah. expand the self you know that reminds me of um, a quote from mother teresa you know she um, was often given a lot of praise for the you know beautiful and global reach of her work you know the missionaries of charity and all of that and she won the nobel prize and was in 1999 in the Gallup poll in America about who's the person in the world that you most admire over the last hundred years. And she, she was the most popular. So she had this larger than life kind of, you know, aura to her. And yet uh, when she would be, you know, asked about it, how does she feel, you know, having that kind of fame and glory, you know, she would, she would say, I'm like a pencil in the hands of God. And, you know, God is writing the love letter, you know, to the world. Would you ever give credit to the pencil? That's when beautiful. I think of that in the context of what you're saying, I've seen that, you know, with the Lincolns, the Martin Luther Kings, the Gandhis, you know, these kinds of change makers from history that I've been drawn to studying, the Mother Teresa's, is that they, in some ways, invoke what you just said about being like really expansive in the sense of identity, feeling connected with, um, in some ways, really the universe. Uh, but at the same time, being very grounded, you know, in their uh, individualized, you know, expression of that universe in their physical form uh, by this notion of being sort of like a channel, you know, and that their quest is like to get in tune, you know, so that the energy and the wisdom and the strength of that universe can essentially flow through them to conduct and do what it believes is necessary, you know, for them in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And you never... You know, I, I, you never know when you drop out of the, the vulnerability we have to see the self as a noun, like an entity. And that vulnerability is probably because if we can see self as an entity, then we get a, an illusion of certainty that makes us feel like we can have uh, protection from that ability to have prediction. So to say that very simply, the drive for certainty makes us have an identity as an entity, a noun-like thing. But instead, if you, if you, as Rashid, the artist whose quote is on the entry to the Brooklyn Public Library, uh, she says, having discovered the flimsy fantasy of certainty, I decided to wander. And I love that quote because, you know, we all have a drive for protection. Uh, and to get protection, we want prediction. To get prediction, we need certainty. 
and then we want to think of our identity as an entity. So you can see where it all kind of fits together and especially under threat, especially these days, you'll intensify your nounification of identity. So in many ways, that channeling you're talking about at Tender is so beautiful because it's really saying, I'm really not a noun. I'm really a verb. And in the verb-like flow, I am not just this body of flow, not just this brain in my skull or the skin encased body, but it, for me, it's, as a scientist, it's energy and information flow isn't blocked by skull or skin. So then I become immersed in a kind of um, what Taylor Deschardins would call a noosphere. Uh, we would talk about it from now maybe as an energy and information atmosphere, you know? And so then things just happen to go through you. And the pencil idea from Mother Teresa is so beautiful that when we let that kind of thing happen, we, we then, you know, become the instrument. So like, as I'm writing this book, Interconnected, it has a feeling like the first book I ever wrote, which is there's an idea that needs to be expressed somehow, almost like a, a cotton ball inside of me that somehow is filling me up or something. It's just a feeling. And then I just have to make the time, put the fingers on a keyboard and see what comes up and see, you know, in a way it's kind of, I think of it as relational writing, see how the ideas through the words might be able to reach that just one person who would take the time because we're so busy these days, you know, with very short attention spans, you know, people now say, put out a video that's 30 seconds long, not, you know, 10 hours long. And, uh, and so a book, it takes a lot of time. So I really try to make the book very relational. And, and I think if, if, um, if the flow through this body can take a certain formation in its information, that then is a source of inspiration, that person will also channel it somehow. And so I really think of it as, you know, one relationship at a time, uh, even with something as simple as, you know, a new word like we or interconnected or something that just says, wow, okay, you know, we, we need to work from the subjective sense of perspective and agency, not only of the interior, but also the relational and work with it together in an integrated way. So I really am very hopeful actually, if if we've identified the splinter, that we can stop humanity limping through its way of kind of hobbling along with nature and instead make it a dance yeah, where, yeah. where we dance together in a beautiful way. Yeah, yeah, I, I love that sense of optimism that uh, this model brings. You know, there's a thought that is coming to my mind around uh, the significance of the word intra, right? Of that part of the word of interconnected, the intra part. And you're linking it more to the self, you know, and then the connected as the relational. But I'm also thinking then, uh, I don't know if this makes sense to you, is that another value of that switch from interconnected to intraconnected is the realization, which again, it links a little bit to some of the conversations I have, you know, with the executives, you know, and leadership development and culture, you know, in organizations, is that true leadership is not merely about helping to align and direct the speech and actions of people from the outside, but to create that almost like spirit to spirit connection in a certain harmonization of thoughts and feelings and intentions on the inside, right? So when I think about your relational aspect of interconnected, 
there is significance towards not seeing it purely in terms of certain outer conformity, right, or alignment, but actually almost like a deeper invisible intra connection from the inside. Yeah, is, is, that, is that making sense? Yeah, totally. It feels right. It sounds right. And you're saying it so beautifully. Yeah. I mean, and it's really uh, uh, just to underscore what you're saying is it's about joining, you know, not about directing someone, you know, and in the joining, I think, uh, and, and here's, you know, it'll be interesting to see as people read the book, if they have this experience, the audio engineer, when I read the audio book, yeah. he had it in the middle of where well, we started doing the audio engineering, he started like, being unable to do the engineering, we had to pause. Yeah. And I had to say, what's going on? What's going on? He goes, I don't know. My whole sense of who I am is like expanding. And I said, wow. well, that's fine. But you know, I need an audio engineer right now. So I explained to him what the book was about. <laughs> he was able to do it. But the hope would be that these words, whether it's in a book or the conversation here on intersections, that they, they, they start to have someone join with this conversation. And then, and this is the experience I've had so far, people start feeling like, you know, there's a kind of relief that I've been kind of living a lie that I didn't even know I was stuck in. And I feel almost like I'm being liberated from it. And that's been, you know, so deeply, deeply touching to hear that because it's almost like we are living in this kind of sadly perhaps lethal lie of the separate self and and people scramble to try to find meaning in life to try to find happiness and yet underneath it is a false statement that who you are the self the center of experience is only in the body yeah um, just like in my field of mental health we said the self yes is the individual and then we've worked for decades and decades for self-actualization self-realization and we haven't gotten that far because mm -hmm. I think we've made a big mistake to mm -hmm. equate yeah, self yeah. with the individual. Yes, you have a body. That's your individual personal body. So that's where the me is. So this isn't like saying, forget you've got a body. No, you do. It's really, really important to exercise your body, feed your body well, sleep your body well, know the history of your body. Fantastic. So the we says, and the intra-connected says, there's an interiority that is absolutely real and really important. And there's a relationality that is absolutely real and also really important. And when you put them together, you get the we, the me plus we is we. And the liberation of that is that people aren't given a false forced choice. Am I me yeah. or am I we? Yeah. And, and the thing that from a science point of view, that's kind of fun about it is, you know, once you start seeing that who we are is the flow, like you pointed out of something, uh, I call it energy and information flow, but you can call it whatever you want, this flow of something, then you realize the it, the illusion that your skull or your skin encased body is somehow blocking that flow from happening is just an illusion. Yeah. The thing we're talking about is not confined by skin or skull. And then you start going, whoa, this is awesome because then you can really start exploring, you know, how this kind of stuff just seems to happen and you know and then you know there's a process called integration uh, which in this field i work in interpersonal neurobiology we see it as the core basis of well-being yeah. you, know, you differentiate and you link 
And in that integration, it arises from a kind of generator of diversity. A, 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 we call it a plane of possibility in these drawings my daughter made, but it's, it's like, basically it's a sea of potential. It's in physics terms, the, the formless source of all form. That's physics speaking. Arthur Zients uses that great phrase of former quantum physicist at Amherst and emeritus professor there. And, you know, Arthur was so inspiring, but other quantum physicists I've talked about. So when you bring all these different fields together, we call it consilience. E.O. Wilson brought back that term from the 1800s. You know, the common ground across in, in intersections terms, all these different ways of knowing, not just science, like from anthropology to math, but also, you know, indigenous teachings, contemplative teachings, poetry, music. And you bring them all together. It's what we do in interpersonal neurobiology. And then you say, wow, if they're all pointing in independent ways, using different vocabulary, different strategies, but to the same process, maybe there's something solid about that way of viewing the process because everyone's pointing there. That's called consilience. And that's what we do. And that's what interconnected tries to just say, what's the consilient view from contemplation, from indigenous wisdom, from science? What's the consilient view of self? Whoops, it's not consistent with what modern culture is saying. Okay, why don't we actually go with consilience rather than the constriction of a solo self? I want to give the opportunity for our listeners to get one glimpse into some of the very powerful and practical methods that you've been also pioneering, Dan, to help grow people into this interconnected state. And the one that comes to my mind in the confines of the time we have, it's one of my favorite tools from you that I remember being so informed and inspired by, you know, very early in our first connect with each other. And that is the, um, the, the wheel of awareness, the hub, the spoke, the rim. Can you describe that to, to our friends here? Yeah, and it I, it was so central as you're pointing out, Hitendra, that you know I have it as the a, an appendix in the book, and for free you can go to our website and do it. So it's basically the idea of two conciliant ideas. One is that integration, as we're saying, is the base of well-being. The other is that consciousness is needed for change. So then, with my patients years and years ago, I said, "Well, what if you combine those two conciliant ideas?" you know, an integrated consciousness. And there was a table in our office, there still is, you know, which has a central hub, it's glass, and an outer rim, which is wood. Uh, and my patients would then say, what are you doing? I said, we're going to integrate consciousness, we're going to differentiate the knowing, and let's put it in this metaphoric center of the table, and no one wanted to call it the table of awareness, so it's the wheel of awareness. So the center hub of that wheel is a metaphor for where we put the knowing of awareness. Like if I say, hello, Hitendra, you know, you have the knowing that I said hello, um, and that would be put in the hub. But on the rim, we'd have several aspects of the rim, four different segments. This would be sound coming from this body called Dan to that body called Hitendra, and now for anyone listening, and sound would be a form of energy. So it's sound waves are, are molecules of air moving. And so there would be the sound hello. So that would be put on the rim. So the rim is divided basically into energy flow from outside the body, like sound and light and things like that. Then the next segment is energy flow from inside the body, the sensations of muscles, bones, organs. 
Then you go to energy flows probably inside the head brain, like emotions, thoughts, and memories, hopes, dreams, longings, desires, expectations, right. that kind of thing. And then in the fourth segment, you've got the relational sense, our sense of connection to people on the planet. And then in an advanced step, you actually take this spoke of attention, a singular spoke, and you've been moving around the rim from the hub. You now bend it around into the hub itself and you explore pure awareness. And, you know, I did this before the viral pandemic, you know, with over 50,000 people in person uh, in different workshops and got people who were willing to write, write down what they experienced or take a microphone and share and recorded the findings. And it's from that finding that we, you know, have this really interesting notion that awareness itself is related to this formless source of all form. Mm -hmm. And it looks like when you drop into pure awareness, it's like a portal through which integration arises. And one of the most common things people say about that hub is what they experience there is connection, like they've never experienced before, this open awareness and love, you know, that spells the acronym COAL. But love is what people describe. And it's yeah. almost as if, and I say this as a scientist, that love is a thread of the tapestry of reality that opening awareness to gives you this experience of letting love happen. Hmm, hmm. It reminds me of a quote from Rumi. You know, he says, uh, love is the bridge between you and everything. Beautiful. Isn't that, isn't I that love similar that. to what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So nice. Um, I, folks, I do encourage us, you know, if you haven't yet sampled Dan's work to certainly get intraconnected, but also, you know, this, uh, this piece in the appendix that Dan just spoke about, the wheel of awareness, uh, that model, um, hearing it in Dan's own voice, you know, as a guided meditation. I think, Dan, you have some of those also available on your website, isn't it? Yeah, that's on the website and the book Becoming Aware would teach you how to do it in three weeks. The book Aware gives you a deep dive. So there's there's books to support your your journey on the website where for free you can do the wheel. And you were just telling me about um, your book uh, to guide parents into how to raise, you know, healthier lives uh, with some of the, you know, consolidation of all the insights and teachings you have. What What is that book? Yeah. Well, there, there's, six, there's six parenting books I've written and now two children's books. So Now Maps and Now Maps Junior would teach kids directly these ideas. There's Parenting from the Inside Out I wrote with Mary Hartzell, four books with Tina Payne Bryson, Whole Brain Child, uh, No Drama Discipline, The Yes Brain, and The Power of Showing Up, and then a book uh, for adolescents to read themselves, but you can read it too, is Brainstorm. So those would be the, the books for, parent, for the whole journey of parenting. Meanwhile, in my case, I wrote my first book the other day and i remember telling my wife after that you know i think i can die in peace <laughs> and and here you are dan uh, such a prolific mind such a prolific mind so beautiful i remember taking this walk with you just a few months ago in santa monica and as we were doing that i think you were working on giving the finishing touches to interconnect at that time and something in you just got moved to share with me about how you know when you write it's that state of flow it's that being that pencil it's tuning into what is it that in that moment you feel the need to just like share and express as your understanding of truth. Yeah. And, and then you also said something in passing, which was like, and you know, it's not to me at all about like how many, how many books will I sell? You know, that is not even in the picture. And yet as we were continuing that walk and I was just checking in on, you know, all, all, all these books you've written and 
you know, how, how many out there have read it, you know, besides your wonderful 93 year old mother, um, it turns out, what is it like over 2 million books? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that's what the publishers tell me that number. I try not to focus at all on that number or the, yeah. the New York times bestseller business. It's hard. You want people to know about a book. And so if it's a bestseller, people think, oh, then I'll read it. So, so since you're the advocate for the book, of course, you want to let people know about the book and you're kind of in a sense of as a parent like supporting the book going out and try soccer try getting out there try you know you really want to support them but you're not on the play field with them i think my feeling about a book is it's a relationship and if i start thinking oh you know i have these new york times best-selling books you know i i hope this one gets there then it stops the process of it being a relationship and it's more about some imagined view of what is going to sell a lot of books so i really need to make sure whatever aspect of me may be concerned about that goes to the side and when i'm with the the manuscript that i'm really thinking about the imagined reader and what she he they what this reader is going to experience starting from the beginning of the book diving into it the sequence of things the stories the emotion that might happen in this book i even put moments when it might be helpful to pause and just soak it in. So I think it is relational writing. And in that sense, if I, as I mentioned, if I can reach one person besides my mom, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to feel like this was really worth all the time and effort. And if that one person then can share it with maybe one or two other people, yeah. then there can be an exponential expansion. If each person yeah, yeah. that gets in the conversation gives it to two, that's yeah. a pretty good thing. Beautiful, beautiful. So you are the co-founder of the Mindside Institute, and this will be my last like question to you. And the other co-founder is Caroline. And uh, one thing I'm, you know, just uh, fascinated about is your partnership, right? Both in your yeah. personal life, but then beyond in your professional worlds as well. That's not always easy to forge. And Caroline is such an accomplished, you know, spirit unto her own right, uh, best-selling author of the Gift of Presence, and obviously making beautiful contributions at uh, at the Mindside Institute. So what's the secret to having a beautiful, successful, harmonious partnership, both uh, in personal and professional lives? Well, I think the secret, and we always are trying, it's always a work in progress, you know, to differentiate. We have our different roles at the Mindsight Institute, and Caroline's been in charge of the whole online presence. So when you see this extensive educational program we have, and please come join us, that's all Caroline's doing. I may be the teacher, but she's the mastermind behind the whole presence we have online. So we differentiate there. And even in, you know, in the journeys we take in our personal lives, we really differentiate in our connections with our two adult children, uh, trips we take, you know, I just was in the Grand Canyon. Uh, she chose not to come. She's going on another trip. I'm not going on that one. You know, so we, we feel inside of ourselves that differentiating and linking uh, is kind of the art of, uh, of, having a harmonious relationship as best as it can be, because it's hard to actually work with your romantic partner. <laughs> it's really hard. And so we need to make sure certain time of the day, you know, it's time to stop talking about work, you know? <laughs> so it, it's, a, it's a beautiful relationship and she's a beautiful, wonderful human being. And I feel really, really honored that uh, we're partners together. And I'm so happy she has a good connection with you and uh, with your wife. And it's, it's, yeah, it's it, but it's beautiful, uh, you know. Yeah, and we haven't even started to talk about your children uh, yet. But uh, I fondly remember the visit uh, 
by your son to India, you know, in his uh, musical musical voyages. Um, yeah, and he got very inspired, you know, in uh, he, he had a chance to meet with Ravi Shankar, who before he passed, and that was mm -hmm. such a beautiful meeting uh, where he, you know, really inspired Alex, Alex Siegel, if you want to listen to his music, to, you know, go forward and uh, you know, continue his love of music. It was really beautiful. Yeah, so nice, so nice. And, uh, you know, I hadn't realized that it's your daughter who's doing the artwork for your book. She's doing the artwork, even though she's a graduate student getting her doctoral degree in environmental science and engineering. So she's yeah. a scientist yeah. and she's a beautiful artist and human being. And, and really, uh, my inspiration is through her artwork, you know, the drawings and stuff in the book. I listen to Alex's music and I get inspired by Maddie's uh, drawings, Maddie Siegel. And anyway, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's great to be immersed and get consultation from Caroline. So it's a whole family experience. Wonderful. Well, a warm greetings to um, Alex, Maddie and Caroline. And I want to end just by acknowledging one thing which is very special about you. I mean, you know, you're in a field which is surrounded by some very impressive figures, field of science, the field of mental health, uh, the field of authorship and writing. And what I find really unique and powerful about you is that you've just never allowed yourself, as best I can see over the course of your you know, writing and uh, teaching and, and practice, to be kind of slotted into any one single something, you know, discipline, field, you know, kind of path, you know, all that. And it's a very natural thing for experts to identify themselves with some one thing and then just push that particular branch of the knowledge tree and create a few other like little sub-branches and leaves out of it. But in your case, you're so always in that consilience mode, looking for the integrative trunk, right? And celebrating and appreciating and recognizing different branches, but kind of like being above, above the fray a little bit. And that's, uh, that's something really powerful about, uh, yeah, just the position you've taken to really be this consolidator and integrator of so many different important branches out there, but that, you know, sometimes make us get a little bit lost in the weeds, you know, if we don't step back and, you know, see, see the core essence, right? And that's the trunk. And that's how I see you, Dan. Uh, it's incredibly important and beautiful work for the world. Thank you, Tendra. It's good to be with you at the intersections of everything, even if we're not in one of those places and being fluid verbs connecting with one another. Intraconnected, Dan's latest book. I encourage us all to find your path into yeah, Dan's heart and mind uh, across all the range of books he's written, whether it's Intraconnected, so many others that you mentioned uh, around, around parenting and yeah, just uh, the whole mindset work. Um, I'm sure somewhere in there you'll find beautiful jewels to enrich your lives. Thank you, Dan, for the opportunity and look forward very much to continue to see the wonderful arc of your writing and teaching flow and evolve in the years ahead. Thank you, Atendra. Thank you for being you and thank you for having me.